tempted by a chest of gold, Captain Dolent allows his daughter Zenta to marry a mysterious Dutchman. Can her vows of faithfulness break the curse that holds the stranger captive? Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Wagner's Der Fliegende Holländer. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Wagner's Der Fliegende Holländer marks the emergence of a musical style he would fully develop later in his work. I'm Naomi Baratera. Today, a talking about opera lecture with Peter Allen, a former Metropolitan Opera radio host, discussing Wagner's spectacular supernatural opera. This is Peter Allen talking about The Flying Dutchman in the series produced by the Metropolitan Opera Guild. Our script was written by Barry Millington, the author of the volume entitled Wagner, in the distinguished series Master Musicians. Barry Millington writes, A Dutch sea captain condemned to roam the oceans until Judgment Day. It may not sound like an obvious choice for an opera story, since audiences in the early 19th century were more accustomed to sparkling comedies in Italy, grand historical pageants in France, and intense romantic operas in Germany. But Wagner knew what he was doing, when he launched The Flying Dutchman, Der Fliegende Holländer. In the first place, its supernatural subject was very much in the tradition of German romantic opera. We only have to think of Weber's Der Freischütz or Marschner's The Vampire. In the second place, Wagner's tale of the accursed seafarer struck something of a chord in a Germany which, in the 1830s and 1840s, had become increasingly afflicted by a mood known as Weltschmerz, or world weariness. This was a feeling of hopelessness, of unfocused dissatisfaction, even weariness with life itself. And it found its chief literary manifestation in reworkings of the myth of a Hasuerus, or the wandering Jew. The wandering Jew, like the flying Dutchman, was condemned to roam through the centuries, never finding the peace of death and oblivion. He was thus a personification of the worst nightmare imaginable for those afflicted by Weltschmerz. The legend of the Flying Dutchman seems to have emerged in the 18th century when the British and Dutch were engaged in constant skirmishes at sea arising out of trading disputes, and these confrontations no doubt gave rise to macabre sailors' tales that were then passed down orally through the generations. By the beginning of the 19th century, the legend had achieved literary status. A poem of Thomas Moore alludes to a superstition concerning a ghost ship called the Flying Dutchman, and Sir Walter Scott's pirate poem, Rookby, also describes such a vessel supposed to be seen near the latitude of the Cape of Good Hope. A number of German sources also make reference to the legend, notably popular tales by Wilhelm Hauff, which would almost certainly have been known to Wagner, but Wagner's chief source was the poet Heinrich Heine, who published a brief version of the legend in 1826, 
and more elaborated ones in 1833 and 1834, first in French and then in German. As in the story familiar from Wagner's opera, Heine's sea captain is forced to roam the oceans until Judgment Day unless he be saved by a woman's devotion. But Wagner's idealistic ending, with the heroine voluntarily sacrificing her life to save the Dutchman from his fate, was hardly to Heine's taste. With his usual irony and cynicism, he suggested that perhaps the Dutchman would rather be saved from his wife's clinging loyalty, presumably to allow him the freedom to roam once more, far from bourgeois marital constraints. But it's Wagner's Dutchman with whom we are concerned here, and his dark, doom-laden treatment of the story, reflecting the contemporary mood of Weltschmerz, expresses some of the deepest anxieties and emotions of the human condition. The figure of the flying Dutchman, like that of the wandering Jew, was perceived as a symbol of the longing for home, the search for a refuge from the storms of life. For Wagner, appalled as he was by the ravages of the modern technological world, this was a particularly potent image. Although it's tempting to see the story as a reflection of the miserable period Wagner spent in Paris between 1839 and 1842, the years in which The Flying Dutchman was composed, it should probably be understood more generally as a depiction of the plight of the artist. Thus, The Dutchman's endless, lonely globe-trotting represents on one level the futile attempt of the artist to come to terms with modern reality. His inability to interrelate with a society felt to be hostile condemns him to isolation. The Dutchman is saved only by the self-sacrificing determination of the heroine, Santa, to join him in that isolation. These points of interpretation become evident only during the course of the opera. When the overture starts, we are only conscious of the powerful evocation of a storm at sea the kind through which we're told the Dutchman constantly sails in a vain attempt to get himself shipwrecked. You can feel the roll of the waves. Listen also to those bare open fifths that launch the overture. They have an elemental demonic quality that is entirely appropriate to the subject matter and which immediately sets the work apart from anything Wagner previously attempted. The storm abates, and a ballad-like melody is heard on a choir of wind instruments, English horn, horns, and bassoon, 
If the pounding open fifths are to be associated throughout the opera with the Dutchman, this new gentle tune is later to be recalled frequently in connection with the heroine, Santa, and the redemption she brings. The curtain rises on a steep, rocky shore. The storm is subsiding, and a Norwegian ship has just anchored close to the shore. The sailors sing as they unfurl the sails, the sounds of their calls echoing round the rocks. In his autobiography, Mein Leben, written many years later, Wagner gives us an evocative account of a stormy sea voyage he and his wife Minna endured on their way to Paris in 1839, of their taking refuge in a small Norwegian harbor, and of a supposed connection with his flying Dutchman. Quote, The sharp rhythm of the sailor's call clung to me like a consoling augury, and soon shaped itself into the theme of the Norwegian sailor's song in My Flying Dutchman, unquote. It's a charming story. But what he doesn't mention is that the opera was originally set not in Norway at all, but in Scotland. The change to Norway was made at a very late stage, even after rehearsals had begun. No doubt one of the chief reasons for the story was to bring life and art more closely together. The Norwegian captain, whose name is Dalant, comes on shore to see where they have hitched up. It's Sandvika, he tells the steersman. I know the bay very well. Incidentally, Sandvika, or Sandviken, is the name of the very Norwegian harbor in which the Wagners themselves had taken refuge. Dalan tells his crew to go and get some rest, but he asks the steersman to stay on watch. To keep himself awake, the steersman sings, as sailors will, a little ditty about the girl waiting for him at home. The Norwegian captain, whose name is Dalant, comes on shore to see where they have hitched up. It's Sandvika, he tells the steersman. I know the bay very well. Incidentally, Sandvika, or Sandviken, is the name of the very Norwegian harbor in which the Wagners themselves had taken refuge. Dalant tells his crew to go and get some rest, but he asks the steersman to stay on watch. To keep himself awake, the steersman sings, as sailors will, a little ditty about the girl waiting for him at home. As you can hear from those swirling sixteenth notes in the strings and thunderous crashes, the winds are still only subsiding. 
Losing his battle against sleep, the steersman finally breaks off mid-phrase. The storm immediately picks up again. The sky grows darker, and a ship heaves into view with blood-red sails and black masts. The vessel comes alongside that of the Norwegians, and if we hadn't already guessed, the open fifth horn calls tell us that the ship is that of the Flying Dutchman. Like his next two operas, Tannhäuser and Lohengrin, Wagner's Flying Dutchman stands, stylistically, in between his early traditional operas and the fully-fledged music dramas beginning with The Ring. The Dutchman shows the first stage in the transformation. There are still individual passages that are identifiably arias, duets, or choruses, but they are beginning to be woven into a seamless structure. One of the most interesting of these composite units, known as the Dutchman's Monologue, starts as the doomed wanderer comes on shore. Die Frist ist um, he sings. The term is up. Another seven years have passed, and once again he is allowed on land to seek salvation. His recitative begins in subdued fashion, but it soon acquires a note of despairing rage. Come on. 
Then follows a section rather like an aria. The Dutchman tells how often he has courted death, even offering his ship and all his treasure to pirates. But the watery grave he seeks has always eluded him. The swirling motion of the orchestral accompaniment depicts the storms through which the seafarer has voyaged, as well as the inner turbulence of his mind, of course. But notice, too, the uneven lengths of phrases, often three bars or five rather than the conventional four or eight. The significance of this will become clear later. The next stage in the monologue suddenly adopts a more conventional mode. It's a prayer for a redeeming angel to be sent from heaven. The phrases are of traditional four-bar length, and the accompaniment a rather unimaginatively unvaried one of tremolo strings. The French composer Berlioz, Wagner's senior by ten years, was on the whole impressed by the score of the Dutchman, but when he faulted an excessive and tedious use of tremolo, this passage must have been one he had in mind. After another short, despairing recitative comes the final section of the monologue in which the Dutchman's fervent hope for release is powerfully conveyed in a passionate vocal line doubled by the orchestra. Oh! <laughs> 
Dallant now comes out of his cabin, sees the strange ship alongside, shakes the unfortunate steersman awake, and has him call out through a megaphone. The Dutchman reveals himself, and in response to Dallant's questioning, gives him a diplomatically edited account of his wanderings. What makes Dallant really prick up his ears is the Dutchman's announcement that his ship is laden with treasure, and he is willing to bargain handsomely for a single night's shelter on land. His men bring out a chest, and the contents leave Dallant almost speechless with amazement. The Dutchman knows he hasn't got long, and he asks Dallant straight out whether he has a daughter. Yes, a faithful child, replies Dallant. Then let her be my wife. Dallant is at once astonished and overjoyed at the prospect of exchanging his daughter for the untold riches on display. His jaunty, staccato little phrases catch his joy, but together with a very conventional harmonic pattern, they also make clear just how superficial a character he is. Wagner despised money-grubbers of Dallant's sort, and it is now apparent how differently Dallant is characterized from the Dutchman. Indeed, we can say that the drama has an interior world and an exterior world, which are characterized by different types of music. The interior world of the imagination is that inhabited by the Dutchman and Santa. Their music tends to break free of the regularity and orderly forms of traditional opera. To the exterior world of reality belong Dallant, Eric, the young man who wants to marry Santa, and the other Norwegian men and women, whose music tends toward the conventional and mundane. For the time being, when the Dutchman joins Dallant in a duet, he accedes to the Norwegian's conventional style. And so the problem of accommodating disparate personalities within a single number is not resolved here. Oh, 
Dallant invites the Dutchman home to meet his daughter, and the Norwegian crew sets sail with a full choral reprise of the steersman's song from the beginning of the act. When the chorus of the Norwegian sailors at the end of Act One leads straight into the spinning chorus of Act Two, there has to be a rapid change of scene from the seashore to the interior of Dallant's house. And there is also a change of sensibility from the hearty, masculine yo-ho-ho of the sailors to the more intimate, domestic scene of young women at their spinning wheels. Wagner negotiates a skillful transition between the two with a gradual winding down of tension and energy. At the same time, he neatly unifies the two choruses with a repeated dotted figure. In the first chorus, we imagine it to represent the sailors hauling on the ropes. In the second, it depicts the turning of the wheels, and it surely also reflects the humdrum, repetitive task in which the women are engaged. Here are the two choruses with the dotted figure linking them. While the other young women are spinning away, Dalant's daughter, Senta, is absorbed in contemplation of a portrait hanging on the wall. It shows a dark-bearded, pale-complexioned man in black Spanish clothing. Senta's companion, Mary, chides her for daydreaming, and she's teased by the other young women, too. Senta wants Mary to sing once again the ballad of the Flying Dutchman, with whom she identifies the figure in the portrait. Mary refuses, and when Senta announces that she will sing it herself, Mary pointedly goes on spinning, but the other women gather round to listen. 
Santa's ballad begins, rather like the overture, with those astringent open fifths, high in the strings, and the Dutchman's horn call of a theme pounding away in the bass. But now there's a change of mood, as in the refrain, Santa expresses her fervent hope that the Dutchman will find the woman who, by her fidelity, can deliver him from his appalling fate. The music of the refrain is based on the redemption motif heard in the slow section of the overture. In the second verse, we learn that the Dutchman is being punished for a blasphemous oath. The third stanza tells how he is allowed on shore once every seven years to seek the faithful woman who can save him. This time, the refrain is sung by the women who have been listening. But then, Santa makes her dramatic intervention. She realizes that she is the Dutchman's longed-for savior, 
and the intensity of her emotion burst through the constraints of verse and refrain structure. Here is the third stanza, followed by the choral refrain and Santa's interjection. Santa's suitor, the huntsman Eric, enters just in time to hear this outburst. She's on the point of rushing out, but he detains her, and he tries her patience still further by launching into an aria of such conventional cut that his incompatibility with Santa is immediately obvious. Santa tries to break away, but the hapless Eric, who doesn't give up easily, taxes her further with another stanza. From her replies, we deduce that Santa is confused about the new emotion she feels rather than rejecting Eric outright. The following episode, however, 
is to seal Eric's fate. His recital to Santa of his dream is therefore a dramatic turning point, and appropriately, it represents also the most stylistically advanced writing in the work, with word accents falling naturally rather than being forced into preordained schemes. Eric begins by describing how, in his dream, he lay on the cliffs watching the sea. A strange ship appeared. The Dutchman's theme sounded quietly in the bass, tells us whose it was, and the phrases, hesitant and fragmented, remind us that this is a dream. Senta has her eyes closed and is imagining the scene depicted by Eric. She gently prompts him, and he goes on to tell how he saw Santa's father with a pale man in black, rather like the one in the picture on the wall. He then saw Santa give herself to the strange man and finally put to sea. Santa suddenly wakes from her trance-like state with the ecstatic cry, He seeks for me! And Eric rushes away in horror and despair. Listen for the fragmented vocal lines of Eric's narration, and the sparing but atmospheric orchestral accompaniment. As Santa remains sunk in silent contemplation of the portrait, the door opens and her father, Dalant, appears with the Dutchman at his side. Santa looks from the portrait to the Dutchman in astonishment. The Dutchman also remains silent, 
while Dallant gently chides Santa for failing to welcome him. He launches into an aria whose characteristic banality with self-satisfied grace notes and even cadenza speaks volumes about the mundane world from which Santa longs to escape. Both Senta and the Dutchman are rendered speechless. Dallant makes a prudent exit, and the two are left alone. The rest of the act consists almost entirely of a long duet in several sections. It begins with the Dutchman alone, lost in contemplation of Senta. The angel of his dreams, he muses, and Senta joins in, similarly unable to believe that the object of her fantasy, the man to whom she always longed to bring deliverance, has now taken corporeal form in front of her eyes. tempo increases slightly as the Dutchman draws closer to Santa and speaks to her more directly. Will she indeed consent to be his? Animated triplets indicate a further quickening of the pulse as Santa vows to be faithful to him whatever fate holds in store. Santa assures the Dutchman that she well knows a woman's sacred duties. Faithful to death, Santa proclaims herself, and in a final outburst of joy, the two of them sing of the happiness they have both now found. Oh! 
Skylon's interest to ask if they've made up their minds yet, his people are looking forward to the traditional feast after a voyage. May he enhance the festivities by announcing a betrothal? Fortunately for the avaricious Dalant, the pair have no hesitation in consenting. Dalant, of course, knows next to nothing about the stranger and doesn't seem to have considered whether or not he would bring happiness to his daughter, but Dalant's shallow, materialistic outlook is by now clear. He is the forerunner of characters such as Hunding in the Ring, for whom marriage is a matter of property rights and love and affection, unnecessary extras. An orchestral introduction to Act Three leads to a hearty chorus for the Norwegian sailors. The chorus, Wagner said, was inspired by the cries reverberating around the fjord after his own stormy voyage. <laughs> ship is brightly lit and forms a stark contrast to the unnaturally dark Dutch ship anchored alongside. Dalad's house is in the foreground and now the women emerge from it carrying baskets of food and drink. Everybody is struck by the eerie stillness surrounding the Dutch ship. They call up to the unseen sailors, inviting them to join their feast. Their calls become more urgent and build to a spine-tingling climax, but the answer is unearthly silence. Much of the choral work hitherto has been more or less conventional, but in what follows, the pressure of dramatic events produces something quite out of the ordinary. To begin with, 
the singing of the Norwegians becomes more and more frantic as they fail to make any impression on the unseen Dutch crew. A driving figure in the strings adds to the tension, and then we hear the horn-call motif signaling the Dutchman. The demonic open fifths from the overture strike up in a violent change of key. At the same time, a storm begins to blow up, but only around the Dutch ship, and the sailors of the Flying Dutchman now begin to emerge and strike up a song that chills the watching Norwegians. Here's the end of the Norwegians' chorus, leading to the ghostly appearance of the Dutch. Norwegians are horrified by what they see and hear and strike back with their own chorus, gradually increasing in pitch and volume as they try to banish the ghastly apparitions. It's an astonishing piece of choral writing, a pitched battle between two groups vying for supremacy with a full storm howling in the orchestral accompaniment. Listen for the piccolo, graphically depicting the wind whistling through the rigging as well as the sound of the wind machine. The raging elements, in conjunction with the supernatural forces, are too much for the Norwegians, as you'll hear. Santa now comes out of the house with trembling steps, followed by an equally agitated Eric. He cannot understand how Santa could give her hand to a man she has only just met, but he is reckoning without the rock-like, self-sacrificing fidelity of the first great Wagnerian heroine. Santa is now sure that it's her destiny to save the Dutchman from everlasting damnation. Eric makes a passionate appeal to the woman who once seemed devoted to him. Like his solo in Act Two, the present Cavatina is of conventional cut, as befits the simple, worldly huntsman. But there are also one or two rather unexpected modulations that increase our sympathy for Eric and thus enhance the poignancy of the dramatic situation. 
Unnoticed by anyone, the Dutchman has entered, and he overhears the talk about Santa's devotion to Eric. The Dutchman, believing that Santa cannot also be faithful to him, repudiates her and makes ready to set sail. In a trio often cut for no good reason, Santa, Eric, and the Dutchman all voice their emotions. The Dutchman then declares who he is. Only a woman faithful to death can release him from his accursed, ageless wandering, but if that woman be unfaithful to her vow, eternal damnation is her fate also. However, since Santa's vow to him has not yet been sworn before God, he releases her from it. But Santa replies she well knew when she first set eyes on him who he was. She once again pledges her loyalty even to death. But the Dutchman goes on board his ship, and Santa has to be forcibly held back. Then, breaking free, she rushes to a clifftop overhanging the sea, calling after the Dutchman in a final passionate outburst, Here I stand, faithful to you, even unto death. She throws herself into the sea, at which the Dutchman's ship, with all its crew, immediately sinks. The sea rises high and falls back again, over the wreck of the ship are seen the forms of Santa and the Dutchman, locked in embrace, rising from the sea and floating upward. A redemption motif from Santa's ballad makes a final transfiguring appearance in the closing orchestral bars. The curse on the Dutchman is lifted. A faithful woman has brought him salvation.
That was Peter Allen talking about Wagner's Der Fliegende Holländer. If you enjoy our podcast, please post a review in iTunes or email us at info at metguild.org. We always love hearing from our listeners. Be sure to tune in next week for a special episode with musical highlights from the Met's first season at Lincoln Center 50 years ago. I'm Naomi Baratera, and this is the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.